I struggle with substance abuse and I go to church here. I struggle with anxiety and this is my church home. I struggle with trusting God and I'm a part of this church. I struggle with being faithful to my spouse and we attend here. I struggle with anger and I go to UC. I struggle with gambling and I go to church here. I struggle with an eating disorder and I sit next to you on Sundays. I struggle with fear and I'm a member of Union Chapel. I struggle with believing in God and this is my church home. I struggle with homosexuality and I attend church here. I struggle with an addiction and I come here every weekend. I struggle with lying. I struggle with suicidal thoughts. I struggle with lust. I struggle with porn. I struggle with greed. I struggle with cutting myself. I struggle with depression and I go to UC. Morning, everyone. Appreciate that the offering's still being received. That's, that's great. Glad you're here. Good weekend with D now. Yeah. Say thanks to uh, everyone who made D now possible. Of course, all the students, all these host homes, and everyone who made food and transportation, all that stuff. Plus, the electricity went out here last night. You may not be aware of that. Uh, in fact, our Saturday night service was conducted out in the cafe because we had some ambient light coming through the skylights there. We, uh, we set up a generator and put up a portable sound system. We made it work. Uh, one of our custodians was actually out there peddling, keeping the... <laughs> have to pay him double time for that. That was something. But I know you had a great time, so welcome to the service today. Today we're uh, talking about a very challenging, difficult subject, and so I want to make a few comments before we read the scripture today. And I also want to uh, just say that I'll be giving closer attention to my notes more closely than usual because I want to be so careful about my words today. A uh, woman in another city wrote her pastor these words. I saw that you'll have a sermon on homosexuality soon. I decided to put my thoughts about the subject to you privately. As you know, I was three years older than my brother Lawrence, and I believe he was born gay. I watched him growing up, and my earliest thought about the subject was that he should have been born a girl. He has certainly endured persecutions during his whole life at the hands of others over this situation. And he states, who would ever choose to be this way? Certainly not me. When I was reading the one-year Bible through last year, I was looking especially for any references in the Bible about homosexual relations. I noticed that references to adultery and other sexual sins were mentioned far more often in the Bible than homosexual sin. The latter was mentioned more in terms of open sexual relations in public like an orgy, especially in relation to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Paul mentioned it again in the New Testament, and it's explicitly clear that it falls into the category of sin. I ask that you pray for Lawrence, because he's no longer active in church and is angry with God for making him gay. He claims he's atheist and does not believe in heaven, but when he stated he was mad at God for making him gay, I knew he couldn't be atheist. He's suffered so much and is very bitter at this stage in his life. He doesn't want to hear anything about God or Jesus from me. So also pray for me that I'll do or say what will help him the most. Thanks. Good luck with your upcoming sermon. Love you, Susan. Question, do you hear in Susan's words the depth of love she has for her brother? You hear that? Do you hear the deep, deep spiritual questions? Do you hear the tremendous pain? The question I want to address this weekend is gay okay? There's no bigger topic in our culture right now. It's interesting that when we announced this sermon topic online and via the mailers we sent out, we immediately received two equal and opposite responses, again, just based on the sermon title. 
There are people on the extreme ends of this conversation who are literally foaming at the mouth and unable to hear the concerns on the other side. We have churches, for example, that pound on the truth without love, banners and words and protests and threats of God's judgment. We have churches that are all about love without truth, who are completely open to homosexual orientation and practice, who say, no problem, we affirm your lifestyle as a gift of God and will ordain ordain you as priests and pastors. My goal is to instruct us so that we can continue to be a church with people who are sensitive to both sides of this moral issue and find the Christ spirit by speaking the truth in love. There's a lot of heat and a lot of emotion around this subject, and we need more light. So I hope that we can share some light. There are presuppositions that are brought to this argument. There are presuppositions from the homosexual community. For example, they would say that it is a moral alternative, sexual orientation. Why? I was born gay, therefore homosexuality is an identity. It's who I am. And if it's who I am and I was made this way, then it's normal and natural. If it's normal and natural, then it's just an alternative way to live. So if it's natural and normal, then it's a civil rights issue. People of different genders and races are protected, and those of us in the homosexual community should also be protected. Now listen to me carefully. If you, if you believe these presuppositions to be true, can you see why you would be angry with people who call you names or invalidate your lifestyle? Or believe you need to change? It might be helpful for those of us who don't struggle in this particular area to walk in another person's shoes for a moment. It might change your way of thinking or your behaviors or your reactions to the homosexual community. Now there are also presuppositions by contrast from the Bible-believing community. And these presuppositions include homosexuality is an immoral, prohibited sexual lifestyle. You are not born that way, but it's learned or developed. So what is prohibited is homosexual or same-sex behavior or practice. The Bible teaches that people can be tempted with same-sex attraction, but behavior and practice is prohibited. Homosexuality isn't something that you are. It is something that you do. If it is something you do as a learned behavior prohibited by God for your protection and for your good, then it is abnormal and unnatural. And far from being an alternative lifestyle, it is a destructive lifestyle, physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Finally, then, it is a moral issue. And this may be where some of you are today. And I'm going to ask that you take a deep breath, do your very best to get an open listening mode, uh, remain calm. (laughs) If I make a point you strongly agree with, I'm going to ask that you do not cheer. If I make a point you strongly agree with, or disagree with, rather. I'm going to ask that you do not jeer. We're addressing a very difficult set of issues that touch almost everyone in this place in a direct or indirect way. I I would guess that every one of us have someone we love who's gay. Now, for us, this is not a them out there kind of subject. This is very much about us. As the pastor of this church, I know that we have seekers in our congregation who try to reconcile their sexuality with their faith. I know that we have people who are openly gay. We have people with same-sex attraction who are actively trying not to act on those feelings. We have people, married and unmarried, who privately struggle. Our denomination, the United Methodist Church, is ground zero for the debate around homosexuality and Christianity. We are the only historic mainline denomination that has not either split over this issue 
or decided to allow gay weddings and ordinations. The reason why homosexuality is such a watershed issue in our church is because behind it lay the larger issue of biblical authority. Let me put this statement up on the screen. This is what us Methodists denominationally wrestle with. If the scriptures are not authoritative on matters of human morality, why are they authoritative on any issue? So there are some who believe that our general conference, which meets for us Methodists every four years and coming up this summer in 2016, could be the last one for our denomination in its current configuration. There are some who believe that this issue will divide our church. And for the record, the United Methodist position on homosexuality uh, is the following, and I quote from our own book of discipline, that all people, regardless of sexual orientation, are people of sacred worth. We support equal rights in civil society for all people, regardless of sexual orientation. We supported, in the past, before the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, we supported laws in society that define marriage as the union between one man and one woman. We support efforts to stop violence against all people, regardless of sexual orientation. We view homosexual practice as incompatible with Christian teaching. Ceremonies celebrating same-sex unions are not to be conducted by our clergy or held in our church buildings. Self-avowed, practicing homosexuals are not to be ordained or considered as candidates for ministry. Now, we know in American culture at large, we seem to have recently reached a tipping point where a majority opinion has swayed in favor of welcoming homosexuality into the mainstream. There is a full court press, if you will, underway in the media to approve, accept, and celebrate the lifestyle and those who find themselves resistant are finding themselves marginalized in any number of ways. The very human issue of how we love and welcome each other has become mixed with a very political agenda, and the church finds itself caught right in the crosshairs. So there's a question being shouted at the church right now. Is gay okay? And I want you to know that I've taken up this topic today very reluctantly, it is not my practice to single out a particular group of pe people for scrutiny in one of my messages. What we do here on the weekend is talk about how we can become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let me put this statement on the screen for us. All, we all have areas in our lives that are out of sync with God's Word. Nod your head. Absolutely true. I don't want to address this issue in isolation of the larger picture of human sexuality, which is incredibly complex and varied. There are not just two categories, gay and straight. Some have suggested it's better to think of a continuum between exclusively attracted to the opposite sex and exclusive attraction to the same sex. Lesbianism has its own issues apart from male homosexuality. Here's another statement that I believe to be true that I'll put on the screen for you. We are all sexually broken in one way or another. Just look at all the labels we throw around to try to describe the sex sexual landscape. We have straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, transsexual, transvestite. Some people call themselves queer or polyamorous or inquiring. The variety is endless. These labels, though, hear me now, these labels can become idolatrous in and of themselves. So let me remind you, as believers in Jesus, we are called to find our primary identity in Him. We are followers of Jesus. Not everyone with same-sex attraction is engaged in the practice of homosexuality. Not everyone with the desires is acting on them. These are the most underrepresented group in our culture. They don't name themselves. You won't find them waving any flags or demanding their rights. They have chosen to deny themselves. And the heaviest burden I feel today is for these folks. For the man or woman sitting in church feeling the inner conflict and asking the question, 
Is this battle worth fighting? The culture has spoken. So what says the church? What are we going to do today is look at what the scriptures say. We want to look at the scripture and try to understand God's word and make that application. I've chosen as our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read for us verses 9 through 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we'll project these words on the screen. Our our tradition here at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's word. I'll invite you to do that as you are able. This is the Apostle Paul now writing to the church at Corinth. Now, you should know that Corinth was not a a Hebrew city. It was a Greco-Roman city, and it was very sexually diverse. It was a pagan city. Christians in Corinth were a very, very small minority. So the Apostle Paul is trying to give the believers here in Corinth a Christian worldview in the context of their own culture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right, but will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise also all of us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that... Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. May God instruct us and inspire us through this word. You may be seated. Now, let's consider the scripture. I can honestly say that I've never met a homosexual person that I don't like. And speaking stereotypically, if you have an emotionally sensitive man that is in touch with his feelings and cares about his personal appearance... That's actually a very winsome person. You know, I like that guy. I asked myself the other day, who would I spend, rather spend the day with? The average tele-evangelist or Ellen DeGeneres? I'll take Ellen. <laughs> she's funny. She's generous. She's humble. She, she seems to be open-minded. At least it seems so. There's so much about her that's positive, like a role model. And some people would say, well, as long as you treat other people well, isn't that what, what a Christian ought to be? That's like the golden rule. Jesus said, when he was asked about the law, he said, there are, there, there are two commandments that are the top of all the commandments. These summarize all the law. And he said, it's this, love God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God in the vertical, and love your neighbor as yourself. He also said in, Matthew, or in John's Gospel, chapter 14, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so he said, the greatest commandment is this, love God. Love people. If, if, you, if you love me, you'll do, you'll obey, you'll follow. That's what you'll do. So let me just talk to folks who are heterosexual in the room today, that we should be slow to judge someone who does not have the struggle we have. We should be, we should be slow to judge 
the other person who struggles with things that we don't struggle with. There are plenty of sin in our own hearts to work out without worrying about the finding sin in other people's lives. That's where an amen goes. We seek to be a church that models grace. Now, having said that, we all get it. We all mess up. I want to put this statement on the screen. Just because we all fall short of the standard doesn't mean there, there isn't one. Because there is a standard. There seems to be a strong effort to declassify homosexual practice as sinful and listed among the things that can be celebrated in the, in the church with ceremonies and blessings. The issue before us is not whether homosexual people are welcome in the church. Of course they are. The issue is what we can endorse as a healthy expression of human sexuality. There is no need to repent of something if it's not sin. So the question is, is homosexual practice sinful? For this, we need to look deeply into the Scripture. Now, we can start in the Old Testament, but we only need to mention a few things here briefly. In summary, the Old Testament is completely unanimous in its harsh condemnation of same-sex relations. There are two passages that you might hear quoted. One is often quoted by biblically illiterate conservatives on this issue, and the other is often quoted by biblically illiterate liberals. Some, someone without much Bible knowledge that wants to use the Bible to condemn homosexuality will often go to one notable story in Genesis chapter 19. This is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Briefly, this story goes like this. God sees the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. He sends two angels disguised as men to check out just the, the level of depravity there, and they're going to camp out in the city square. Lot, who is living in Sodom at the time, is a nephew to Abraham, and Lot goes to these two men and says, listen, you can't stay out here in the open. It's not safe at night. So he takes him to his home, and in, that, in the evening, then men from Sodom come and bang on the door of Lot's house and say, send those two strangers out here because we want to gang rape them. And so it's a horrible thing. As a result of that, the angels strike these men at the door blind. They lead Lot's family out of Sodom, and, Sodom, and the cities are destroyed with fire and brimstone. Now, while it's true that this paints a picture that is the height of depravity, it's hardly the best argument against homosexuality as practiced in 2016. We can just say gang rape, rape of any kind, is wrong, no matter who's doing it and to whom. Sodom and Gomorrah are often cited by people who want to believe that all homosexuals have nefarious motives, and this is simply not the case. Now, the passages that are often quoted by biblically illiterate people on the liberal side are found in Leviticus. Leviticus is part of the laws of Moses and clearly rejects homosexual practice. For example, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, that's clear and concise. It is in a list of sins that are most extreme. This verse, for example, is between don't offer your children as sacrifices to Molech, and the verse right after it is don't have sex with an animal. The prohibition is repeated again in Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, this reference to the death penalty troubles many people. But it should be noted that there are many things that had the death penalty assigned to them, including being disrespectful to your parents. If a child was habitually disrespectful to their parents, the parents could call the elders of the community and the child could be stoned to death. Now, how many of you would be dead right now if that was the rules around you? <laughs> so th this was probably never really done in practice, but it stood as a harsh warning against these kind of behaviors. 
The reason Leviticus is often quoted by those seeking to approve homosexuality is because what else Leviticus says? Leviticus contains dietary laws and clothing laws and purity laws. In the whole subject of debate, a straw man is, a, is, is when you present a weak argument that you're against and in order to bash it down to the ground to make your point. Leviticus makes a good straw man because you can say, so you're sitting here in church wearing your cotton blend shirt. You went to Red Lobster Friday night for Valentine's Day and you eat pork chops. Who are you to quote the Bible? And so the argument is purposefully theologically naive by pretending that Christians have not been reading the Old Testament for two 2,000 years and making distinction between the aspects of the law. The moral law, like the Ten Commandments, are still in effect. The other parts of the law, the civil part and the ceremonial parts of the law, like clothing laws, dietary, purity laws, those are no longer in effect. They've, for the most part, been fulfilled by Jesus himself, and the other parts are just not relevant. But we still live under the moral obligation of the law. Either way, it's choosing to be biblically and theologically obtuse, trying to make, a, make an argument. But all this is a good segue to help us move into the New Testament passages related to homosexuality. And let me just touch on the Gospels briefly, because something I hear over and over again is that Jesus had nothing to say about homosexuality. And that is true. Can we take from Jesus' silence, then, that he was somehow supportive of same-sex relationships? We didn't say anything against it, so he must be for it. I would say that there is an obvious reason for Jesus' silence on this issue. And the reason was that there was no debate about this subject. Much of Jesus' teachings were occasioned when someone came to debate him on a topic. Jesus ministered exclusively to the Jewish context. And so here's what I want you to know from Jesus. This is, this is a, a statement I want to put on the screen. There was no debate in first century Judaism about homosexual practice. It was universally spoken against. Jesus did, however, say that he did not come to change any of the law of Moses and criticize the Pharisees not for what they believed, but how they practiced their faith. Jesus didn't talk about most things. So I don't know anyone who would successfully argue that anything that Jesus did not expressively prohibit is fine to do. Jesus did, however, teach on marriage. He was asked about divorce. So we talked about this a few weeks ago, and it's recorded in Matthew 19. And when he was questioned about divorce, it gave him an opportunity to express his theology on marriage. And that's when he quote Moses from Genesis chapter 2. And he says, it's for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus' theology of marriage was rooted in the creation story. If you want to know what God intended, go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back to the Creator's design. This was an effective argument against divorce, but it's also an even more effective argument against so-called same-sex marriage. And let me put this statement on the screen. Jesus defined marriage as the enduring union between a man and a woman. The complementary design of males and females is reflected in the words of our marriage ceremony when we married folks. Marriage was instituted by God who created us male and female for each other. So Christianity didn't encounter homosexuality until it ventured out of Israel and into the Greco-Roman world through the ministry of the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul. We read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6 because Corinth was known for its sexual varieties. I mentioned Paul puts sexuality in its Christian context by stating that those who follow Christ are not their own. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So sexual sin is especially pernicious because it affects us so deeply and personally. 
So we are to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Now let me put this next statement on the screen for you. When talking about sex, our culture uses it as, at its starting point, the idea that everyone should be sexually fulfilled. Now listen to me. This is not where the New Testament starts on sexuality. You're not going to have all your sexual desires realized if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Sex calls, calls us uh, in one direction, but Jesus calls us to a narrow path, the path of life. So self-denial is part of the cost of discipleship. As you follow Jesus Christ, he will teach you how to bring your sexual urges under submission to his leadership. Now, there are two places where homosexual behavior is included in the, a list of vices to be avoided in the New Testament. Those places are in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There are two words that are translated as something akin to homosexual behavior. One is malakoi. It literally means soft ones. It's translated as effeminate. Male prostitutes are passive homosexual partners. It's in reference to males who make themselves purposefully effeminate and offer themselves to other males for sex. The other word is arsenokoites. It literally means men who take other men to bed. It is translated homosexual offenders or dominant homosexual partners. It's clear enough that Paul is talking about people who are either on the dominant or passive side of a homosexual pairing. Differing, differing interpretations of these passages I've just listed all become a bit academic because we have the first chapter of Romans to deal with. The book of Romans is the very source for our understanding of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And unlike the other epistles of the New Testament, which address specific circumstances and places and times, the epistle to the Romans is a thorough and exhaustive treatment of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and the implications for both Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul, Paul's first and sustained theological argument in the book of Romans, which unfolds the, 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 the under, our understanding of salvation through Jesus Christ, the first argument he makes is that we are all sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike, and are by nature under the condemnation of a holy God. Paul doesn't have to convince the Gentiles of this, but he realizes he might have difficulty convincing his Jewish audience, many of whom still relied on adherence to the law of Moses as their justification, as their righteousness. So Paul takes three chapters to make the case for universal sinfulness, and he begins in chapter 1 by laying a very clever trap that he'll spring in chapter 2. And to lay this trap, Paul needs two obvious examples of human sinfulness to get his Jewish audience thinking about the nature of sin. He chooses two things that represent a fundamentally flawed orientation toward God and others. He chooses two sins about which there is no debate. One is idolatry, and the second is homosexuality. Now, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, I want to read for us. We'll put the words on the screen. You don't have to stand. And this is what the apostle says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth of their wickedness, since, that, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Now, before I read verse 20, remember he's building an argument highlighting two sins, the vertical sin of idolatry, focusing on other things that become idolatrous rather than on God, the creator God. And then he, then he focuses on a horizontal sin, 
homosexuality and, and how that violates God's created plan. So verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, the created order suggests, it's, isn't it obvious, there's a creator God. It's too magnificent otherwise. Therefore, God gave them over, where was I? Verse 20, where am I? 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So creating idols to worship rather than God. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Now he shifts to the horizontal for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these th very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So why does God use Paul and, and to choose idolatry and homosexuality, homosexuality as exhibit A and B in his argument for human sinfulness? As I stated earlier, the gospel exists on two planes, the vertical plane and the horizontal plane. In idolatry, worshiping idols like a carved image of a human or an animal, the sinner through a darkened mind misses what should be obvious. There is a God, a creator, who is bigger and better than anything found in the creation. Paul is establishing the basis for God's judgment on those who don't have the revelation of Scripture, but he's also pointing out the way that sin blinds us to the obvious and causes us to assign ultimate value to lesser things. The sin, he, he will say, carries with it its own penalty. They became fools, exchanging God's glory of the image of animals and creeping things. This is a sin in the vertical plane. Then he switches over to the horizontal plane of human relationships. And now again, Paul wants to get everyone in his audience going, yeah, I think that's right, so, so that he can convince them of their sinfulness and need of a Savior in chapter 2 of Romans. So it's worth noting that the best, clearest example he can think of for obvious human sin is homosexual practice. Paul's indictment is that they have exchanged the natural uses of their bodies for the unnatural, just as an idol worshiper ought to be able to see that there is an awesome God that stands over creation and is worthy of ultimate praise and worship. A person ought to be able to tell what God intends with human sexuality. It ought to be obvious what a penis is for based on God's design. It ought to be obvious what a vagina is for, based on God's design. And it's true not only for the way the two fit together, but because of the pro procreative function, which is only there when the complementary genders unite. 
The phrase, God gave them over, then, is analogous to the phrase regarding idolatry, they became futile in their thinking. So this is a sin that carries with it its own penalty. They have put their own wisdom and desires over the wisdom of the Creator. Now, a phrase that we often hear in our culture is, love is love. The argument goes, two people love each other, why be afraid of that? It's just love. What could be wrong with love? But in Christian theology, explicit since Augustine in the 4th century, wrong loving lies at the very heart of our problem as human beings. One of the marks of sin is that our loves are disordered. We love things that end up degrading us spiritually and turning away from the things that bring us to God. Let me put this statement on the screen. The process of salvation is allowing God to rightly order our loves and our passions. It's a process. Let me talk about origins just for a moment. There's a lot of energy spent in the debate over homosexuality on the question of where homosexual desires come from. Is it genetic? Is it nature? Is it nurture? I want you to know that I personally don't find this debate all that interesting. I assume it's complicated. It's complex. Why do any of us love what we do? Some have argued that if we could prove it was genetic, then the debate would be over. Ann Curry, she's a network uh, talking head, was interviewing Rick Warren. He is a substantial Christian leader in our culture. She asked, if we could prove 100% that homosexuality was biologically hardwired into someone, would that change your mind? He said, no. And she almost fell off her chair, literally. He said, I'm genetically predisposed to want to sleep with every beautiful woman I see. But that doesn't mean that I should do it. And let me just identify personally with Pastor Warren. I'm convinced that I'm genetically predisposed sexually because I have wanted to sleep with every pretty girl I've seen since I was 12 years old. And let me just make this confession. I'll tell you, it's pretty strong. I'm pretty sure I'm wired this way. Or I wouldn't feel like I do. So I have to be disciplined and rely on God's power. I'm 61 years old. And I've still only had sex with one person. But that will end tomorrow if I don't remain disciplined and submit it to God's power. Because I know what I'm like. I really think I'm genetically predisposed to obesity. <laughs> I used to be 50 pounds heavier than I am today. It's very easy for me to gain weight. I'm gaining weight right now. I don't even know why. <laughs> so I have to be disciplined and rely on God's power. I've even heard the argument that there are examples of homosexual behavior in the animal world. So that proves that it's natural. Well, listen, let me remind you, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's all kinds of disordered. And by the way, the examples of homosexual activity in the natural world are very, very rare. But the argument goes, so therefore anything an animal does is all right for us. <laughs> you know, male hippos try to kill their male offspring. That's not okay. A monkey will throw feces at you at the zoo. That's not okay for us. Listen, I don't know any ethicist, religious or otherwise, who would say that if you really deep down want to do it, then it is automatically okay. Listen, I'm your pastor. I love you. I'm not saying these things because they're popular or they're easy. I'm giving you today what I understand as the unanimous witness of the Christian scriptures. 
These are definitions of marriage and morality that have stood for over 5,000 years in all of the great world religions. And I also want to state what you already know. Our culture is heading in a different direction at a breakneck speed. Our Supreme Court has now redefined marriage to include same-sex unions. Culture has decided it's not going with historic scriptural definitions. Here's my question to you. Can someone now give me the new definition? Is it two people who are committed to each other? Why only two? Some people feel they need more than one partner to be happy. And what about incest? What about pedophilia? What about bestiality? What about necrophilia? Should, should we stand in the way of their happiness? And if so, on what basis? Are we just making it up as we go along? Same-sex marriage has been a reality in Europe for some time. And where same-sex marriage is allowed, the marriage rate in general tends to drop. People are skipping it altogether. So what we are doing is not redefining marriage, but further undefining it. We don't know what it is. There's already been a father and a daughter apply for a marriage license in one of the western states in the United States since last year's Supreme Court decision. This isn't to say that there aren't examples of same-sex couples that are more affectionate, more committed, more nurturing than some traditional marriages. That's absolutely true. And it's not to say that opening marriage to same-sex couples is the only thing that degrades the sanctity of marriage because divorce degrades the sanctity of marriage. Living together degrades the sanctity of marriage. Spousal abuse degrades the sanctity of marriage. Pornography degrades the sanctity of marriage, as does adultery. But our faith holds that the definition of marriage was established by God in the Garden of Eden and is much bigger and more important than the happiness of the two people in a relationship. So what then is our response? Things are going to get very strange there's a tremendous social pressure being exerted for us to conform. You are not invited to be part of things if you hold the wrong view on this issue. Pastors like myself are being scrutinized and ostracized. Some of you have businesses which will not be frequent. I, I, I would say that it's easy for us to become negative and defensive, but I want to give us all the invitation and permission not to take the bait. Let me remind you of something. The early Christians were an extreme minority in the Roman Empire. They seemed like an insignificant sect. They were surrounded by alternative lifestyles and pagan worship. There was cult prostitution, pederasty, men in relationship with boys, slave marriage, polygamy was everywhere. The gospel message, though, in that context, that Greco-Roman world thrived in that environment. 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire would have never predicted that that little Jewish sect of Christianity would have ever survived. But let me remind you, today we name our children Matthew, Paul, and Mary. We name our dogs Caesar and Nero. <laughs> Union Chapel is going to continue to love and be in ministry to everyone because people need Jesus. Everyone needs the Lord. We are going to go full steam ahead with loving God and loving people. We hear a lot today about acceptance. What our culture seems to mean by acceptance is not caring how people live their lives. And I want to submit to you that this is a cheap substitute for Christian love. Love is about caring. Love is saying you matter and how you live matters. Now, I want to speak finally to those who have at least some level of same-sex attraction. Whether it is mild or exclusive. Whether you are open about it or hold it as your deepest secret. Whether you are pursuing it or resisting it. I want you to know that this body of believers loves you. 
And anyone who would seek to do you harm will have to deal with us, will have to deal with me. We want to be the kind of church, because we are all people of sacred worth, which upholds and cares for your dignity and your soul. Let me put this on the screen for us. Just because we may not always be able to celebrate your choices does not mean that we do not celebrate you and God's gifts in you. Pastor, my son, my son is gay. What should I do? Love him. Hug him twice as hard now as you did before you knew. What if he wants to bring someone for Thanksgiving dinner? Give them the best seats at the table. Anyone important to your child should be important to you. Let me put this statement on the screen. The great fallacy of our age is that I have to agree with you in order to love you. It's nonsense. Simply not the case. The gospel message is not, I'm okay, you're okay. The gospel is that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. So there's a new life available in him. I learned this story about a Christian brother in St. Louis that operates a ministry to sexually broken. He was asked to share his own story. He shared that he was raised in a conservative Pentecostal church. When he was a youth, kids from his church used to compete with other churches in Bible bowl competitions. He was a champ. He knew the Bible inside and out, had large sections memorized. His secret was that he experienced same-sex attraction. He married young, hoping the feelings would go away. They didn't. Eventually, he succumbed to his urges and began living a double life. He was only discovered when his wife contracted a sexually transmitted disease. She stuck with him and started on a journey of seeking wholeness. And he found someone who identified with his struggle. And this person told him this, and I quote, When you are a boy of 8, 9, 10 years old, you start to be drawn toward masculine things. You stay away from girls and hang out with boys. You pull away from your mom and get interested in what your dad is doing. You have a little tank inside you that is getting filled with masculinity. Sometimes that tank doesn't get filled. You get rejected by other boys. Get bullied instead of accepted. You experience rejection. For some intelligent, sensitive boys, if they hit puberty without their tank being full, those desires become sexualized and they are experienced as same-sex attraction. Now, this man said that the journey toward healing for him looked like this. Now, listen. It looked like forming healthy, non-sexual relationships with men who could pour into his tank. what he had missed all those years before. There is mounting levels of research, and there's a bunch of it out there. Frankly, I know more about this subject than I ever thought I would, preparing this message. But all the research confirms for people who struggle that same-sex, listen to this, same-sex, non-sexual, deep, loving, nurturing relationships are the key to long-term victory. We played a message bump before the sermon today and what we learned from that we already knew it but what we said out loud was that the church is full of idolaters and workaholics and fornicators and thieves and liars and gluttons sinners all so the great challenge for us now is to embrace people in all these categories if a person walks up to you and says you know I have a problem with alcohol we say oh brother sister let us, let us help you. There's help for you. We can, we can manage that. 
People say, I'm a workaholic, or, I, or I, I'm a glutton, you know, and I just can't manage my food intake well. Oh, let's, let's help you. But, but dare a person say, you know, my, my challenge is same-sex attraction. There's something about culture. There's something about uh, Christian worldview in America, and we hesitate at that point. But listen, we, we must not hesitate. We must open our arms. We must include people. We must love people. We must nurture people. We must fill their tanks. We must help them find their way. That's why we're here. That's why we're in business. I read one man's testimony, and it came down to this. In reference to his own struggle and relationship with the church, he said, I found it easier to find sex on the street than it was to get a hug in church. No. No. That must not be so. Now, you can do with what you want with the psychology of that man's story that I just mentioned a moment ago. But here's the point I want to make. We need to be the kind of church where we fill each other's tanks. We need to offer the kind of community where people find the gospel acceptance that perhaps people did not find earlier in their lives. So I want to put this final statement on the screen. This is my invitation to you. If you are a gay man, then I invite you to be a spirit-filled gay man. If you are a same-sex attracted woman, then, I, then be a spirit-filled same-sex attracted woman. Not acting out sexually in dishonorable ways, not in isolation from the church, but welcomed into the community of loving, supporting people who also need God's forgiving and sustaining grace. I think being a, quote, tolerant church really doesn't require much of us. You can say, ah, oh, straight, gay, whatever. But being a church committed to life transformation will require everything from us. It's hard, it's messy, it's expensive, but it's exactly the model followed by the first century. And that's why Paul could say in our text today from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, after he listed all the various vices of his day, and indeed our day, this is what he said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And therein lies is the hope. So let's not settle for being a church that merely accepts people and all their choices and lifestyles, but rather let's be an authentically loving church that welcomes everyone into a community that is willing to meet everyone at the point of their need. Now let's pray. Oh God, we ask for your strength and grace today because all of us are broken. All of us fall short of your best design. We all need your help. So I pray for those of us who do not struggle with same-sex attraction. Help us to love you with all of our hearts. And help us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, as ourselves. And I pray for those who do struggle with same-sex attraction. May you meet their lives today in such a way that they find courage and hope and peace. May they realize your love, your forgiveness, and your invitation to the support and care of genuine Christian community. And for all of us, Lord, may we find our true identity in you, Jesus Christ. We're not gay or straight or man or woman or darker skinned or lighter skinned, but identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. So may we all be filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we might reflect his life in all our relationships, perfected in his love. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of his people said.